Hi, buddy. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Yes, hello. Welcome, everybody. Uh, We have some new things we're dealing with this week. Primarily, the fact that we now have nine issues per month that we're reading instead of eight. Because both Daredevil and X-Men, which have been bi-monthly, are at this point going monthly. Um, And actually, I will be referring to a tenth as well, but we will not be discussing it in depth. Now I'm baffled. Oh, okay. What are you talking about, Sergeant Fury? Nope. What? What are you talking about? (laughs) What? You'll, You'll have to find out, man. Okay. We apologize that we missed a week. I know you guys, it killed you guys to have two weeks without a Marvel Reread Club podcast. My computer died and Steve was dealing with all kinds of crazy stuff. And so we took a week off, but now we are back. But the other big news is that we got tired of the first half of each month being great and the second half of each month being bad. So we are going to no longer do the books in alphabetical order. We are going to mess around with the order just to sort of mix it up. Yes, I look forward to that. I, you know, uh, let's let's keep it from getting too stale. All right. So uh, I believe you are starting the Amazing Spider-Man, and uh, oh, I mentioned that there is a tenth issue that I was going to be uh, mentioning off offhand, and I figure I might as well go ahead and do that now. In Marvel Unlimited, generally they just have the superhero books and Sergeant Fury. So. Patsy and uh, Millie and the Westerns and stuff haven't been digitized and put up there. However, this month, Millie the model was in there. I was like, huh. Why is that? What's up with that? I looked it up online, and if I'm not mistaken, it is Roy Thomas's first book working with Marvel. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, it is definitely him writing in that story, and I presume the reason that it showed up on there, uh, I'm, I'm making the assumption that it was his his debut, uh, it was his tryout, basically, for uh, writing Marvel Comics. So Roy Thomas um, is going to be a huge presence in the Marvel Universe in the very near future. He will essentially be the ersatz Stan Lee that Stan Lee will turn to to uh, take some of the writing burden off of his hands. And uh, Roy Thomas is able to do a he's almost able to do the Stan Lee voice better than Stan Lee can do it. (laughs) And uh, so he will be end up taking over the writing of more and more books. He will eventually then also take over Stan Lee's position as editor when Stan Lee becomes the publisher. So he is a major force and he has just begun his association with Marvel. Very cool. I guess that is good sleuthing on your part. That's probably why they included it. Did you actually read it? Yeah. I think it was just sort of like, hey, okay, you like the comics, you want to get into the superhero books? Let me see what you can do. Here, go write this other book that's completely not like anything you want to write and see if you can do at least a decent job. Right. That's what I'm guessing happened there. Anyway, yes, but the coming of Roy Thomas is just about upon us. Just about upon us. Stan is finally going to get some time off. Well, it's been it's been interesting how many books he has not written, how many books that the Al Hartleys or uh, Larry Liebers or various other people have scripted uh, in the how many years have we covered? Four years. I guess this this month marks the fourth anniversary of Marvel Comics. But he is going to hand off the job to Roy Thomas in a much bigger way than he has been handing off anything so far. Okay, 
let's go ahead and jump into tonight's comics. Let's go ahead and start with Amazing Spider-Man number 31, If This Be My Destiny, dedicated to you, the great new Marvel breed of reader. We've got a nice cover with Spider-Man on a little spider shape with all sorts of vignettes from tonight's book. So right away, we have to deal with the fact that last issue was such a huge screw up. And the way they deal with it is they don't deal with it. So last issue, we saw Spider-Man fighting a cat group called the Cat. And we also saw him fighting purple costumed goons who were also doing uh, various sorts of burglary. And Stan mistakenly assumed that was all one storyline. So he had the purple goons say, oh, we're working for the cat. Well, it's very clear in this issue that was not the case because the cat has been arrested a long time ago and the purple goons are still going strong. And now they talk about how they're working for someone called the master planner. And Stan is just ignoring the fact that he screwed up so badly last issue. Now, interesting thing on both Spider-Man and Doctor Strange this month. Did you notice this? Steve does not get writing credit. I did notice that on on Doctor Strange, I actually had missed it here on uh, Spider-Man. Hmm. It says, Masterful script by Stan Lee, magnificent artwork by Steve Ditko, mellifluous lettering by Sam Rosen. Now, they're saying Stan Lee wrote the script and, Stan, and Steve Ditko did the artwork. They're not saying who did the plotting. It's yeah. like, well, if one wrote the script, the other one did the artwork, who did the plotting? Uh, Steve has been getting plotting credit on the page on both Spider-Man and Doctor Strange for recent months, but not here. Anyway, presumably still plotted by Steve Ditko and just script by Stan Lee. So... We have, once again, these goons, and I like the way these goons look. They are robbing some scientific equipment. They fly off in a helicopter. Spider-Man spots them robbing it, gets in the helicopter, is fighting them. Spider-Man then decides he's going to be a little badass here. They are getting him with gas. He's about to be knocked off. He's like, I'm going to just knock this helicopter out of the sky, and I'm going to swing some metal stuff in up into the blades of the helicopter and cause the helicopter to plummet out of the sky. And I'm like, uh, that's kind of like killing a bunch of people there, Spider-Man. <laughs> but they are over the water. So the helicopter plunges into the water. And then Spider-Man does say, I can't let them drown, even though they probably deserve to. And he goes back to save them, but they're all gone. Turns out they had scuba gear on them or other people with scuba gear came and rescued them. So Spider-Man's just baffled, seemingly has a clear conscience, doesn't feel like he killed them. He's just wondering where they all went. We see that they have an underwater lair that they are working in where someone named the Master Piner is this. I think it's a very cool looking underwater lair that he lives in. But we do not know who the Master Piner is. So this is they keep doing this on Spider-Man. They just keep doing mis mystery villains. And that's become sort of Spider-Man's thing. The big man, the crime master, the green goblin, and now the master planner are these mystery villains who you have to, there's this big mystery of who it will be revealed to be. And Spider-Man is terrible at this. He has never once <laughs> solved any of these mysteries. He did not solve who the big man was. He did not solve who crime master was. He has not solved who green goblin is. And he does not seem to be too much better with this one. So they've decided this is a major element of this book, despite the fact that it's not really our hero's strong suit. Meanwhile, we get a huge turning point in Marvel Comics, and certainly a huge turning point in this book. Spider-Man goes to college. There is a very nice montage on the bottom of page six of Spider-Man dealing with registration in all of its forms, running into Flash Thompson again, who says drop dead. <laughs> then meanwhile, he finally finds out that Aunt May is sick again. Uh, she finally can't hide her passing out around him and she passes out and gets sent to the hospital. And then we get a really interesting thing where, well, then we get a new supporting cast. Betty Brandt is still around for a little bit more. Liz Allen is gone. It's not going to show up for another hundred issues. And Flash Thompson sticks around because he 
Peter Parker got a science scholarship to go to college and Flash Thompson got a sports scholarship to go to the same college. So they are still stuck with each other. But now Flash has made some new friends, Harry Osborn and Gwen Stacy. And Gwen, people, I think, tend to misremember that John Romita introduced this this cast. I'm that, raising uh, my hand right yeah. now. Yeah. So that that was me for most of my comics reading life uh, that he just she just seems in the way that we usually think of her as such a John Romita creature. I mean, you know, it's like you couldn't get much more John Romita than the way that we think of uh, Gwen Stacy. But no, she predated John Romita. He just uh, reimagined her. Yes, this is issue 31. John Romita is going to take over as penciler and co-potter in issue 39. But for now, we're going to have Ditko, Gwen Stacy, and Ditko, Harry Osborn, which is not that surprising because Harry Osborn has very much Ditko hair in the sort of Bo Derek cornrows on <laughs> a dude sort of sort of look. But uh, Gwen Stacy, I saw you pointing out on our Instagram that uh, she is shockingly attractive. Steve Jekko is doing a very nice job making her a very pretty blonde. Particularly page eight, panel in the bottom left corner. That is possibly the most attractive, like, let me put it this way, most conventionally pretty woman that I have ever seen uh, Steve Ditko draw before or since. I, 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 yeah. I will put that out there. Uh, but yeah, he's he's doing generally a good job with her. Now, as we go on, her little, and he doesn't really make it clear here, but she's basically got hair clips at the two corners of her face, the two upper corners of her face, and those will start looking more like devil horns as time goes on. <laughs> uh, whether that's deliberate or not, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, he does a fantastic job with her here. But so right away, these are interesting characters. I like Harry. Harry pops right away. He's got a good personality as sort of the rich boy who is sort of judgmental. Gwen Stacy is sort of similar to Liz Allen at first. She's, you know, again, a pretty blonde who is friends with Flash, Gor Flash Gordon, <laughs> who is friends with Flash Thompson. And uh, and is sort of, you know, even though Flash has sort of laid claim to her, she is intrigued by this quiet boy, Peter Parker, and is sort of interested in him and even though she would seem to be more attractive than would be in Peter Parker's league, he is sort of not showing her the attention she wants, which only eggs her on a little more. So that's sort of similar to Liz Allen, but she will very quickly become a distinct character. But so then, but then there's a really interesting dynamic here going on where Peter Parker is just so worried about his aunt that he doesn't notice that everybody is forming these social connections at school. And they're all like going like, who are you, Peter Parker? And he is just completely ignoring them. And he's just worried about his aunt in the hospital. And everybody just hates him now. And they all just <laughs> completely judge him. And, you know, Gwen is like, hey, I'm the most attractive woman in the world. And I'm showing an interest in this boy. And he is completely ignoring her. They screw up one of Peter's experiments. Harry screws up Peter's experiment. Of course, Harry and Peter will eventually become good friends, but that is not going to happen for some time. And he and Gwen will eventually become uh, very good friends, but that does not happen for some time either. So then, meanwhile, he is desperately, he swings around town looking for someone to make money. This is America where healthcare is not paid for, and they... He is desperate for money, but swings around town and finds no crime. Well, well, in fairness, in 1965, there were a good number of other countries following the law of the jungle for your health care. We were not alone. But now we are alone. We are the last one. <laughs> so then, meanwhile, back at the Daily Bugle, Ned Leeds is still just continually asking Betty Brandt to marry him. And she is continually going, uh, I'll give you your answer as soon as I learn something. I promise. 
And he's like, I just want you to know that I haven't changed my mind. I still feel the same way about you. I'll keep asking until you say yes. Because <laughs> she is determined to discover Peter's secret before she answers Ned Leeds. Meanwhile, Spider-Man eventually ends up back at the docks. Of course, Steve Jacko loves the docks and always does a wonderful job with docks. And the Master Planner's goons are robbing a ship. I guess Spider-Man has been tipped off by Frederick Croswell and his secret identity as Patch, the crime informant wearing a rubber mask, of course. Spider-Man is getting the tip from Patch, and who is supposed to be a, you know, he is a secret identity, but he's supposed to be like a stoolie, right? He is the criminal who then go feeds information to the, to, the, to the cops. But he says, if my tip is right and you catch him, I want some credit. Really? <laughs> you... Yeah, that's not how that works. No, that's not how that works at all. <laughs> okay, continue. But Spider-Man ends up fighting the Master Spider-Man's goon. He stops. He's, he was very smart this time, and he wore a little gas mask to keep himself from being stopped by the gas. And he manages to stop the robbery, but the coons get away. He just says, rats, this just isn't my week. Meanwhile, we just hear the Master Planner talking about what he's up to. We see the doctors at the hospital saying that it looks like it is going to die. And the issue ends. So we have a huge issue. We've got a new supporting guest who will turn out to be very much characters for the ages. Harry Osborn and Quinn Stacy will become major Marvel characters for the next 60 years. And will there will be so many good stories to be found in them. Well, I should say Gwen will disappear for a long section of that. But, uh, <laughs> is now a major Marvel character again. And we're continuing to develop the Master Planner storyline, which I'm enjoying. I think this is an excellent issue. Yeah, uh, I I very much agree. I <laughs> I don't like the way that he's drawing Harry Osborn for to a large extent. That just the whole thing about his nose being further away from his mouth than it is from his eyes uh, is kind of, well, it's very Ditko, but in like not the best way. <laughs> but uh, but overall, that that's a small quibble. Uh, I, I really like how they're handling his transition into college. Yeah, we're just having some great developments here. So um, I'm going to go through and talk about some things that jumped out at me. On page six, panel two, Aunt May is watching Pete walk out of the house, and she's thinking to herself, he's just like his father, cheerful, enthusiastic, and bright. He's been like a son to me all these years. Is this the first time we have ever heard his actual parents be referenced in this book? I think so. Yeah. And that just really jumps out at me. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, <laughs> to have his parents actually referenced just sort of seemed like, oh, wait, wait a minute. That's right. He had this whole other tragedy before the other tragedy. And what we've never dealt with. It's sort of like, don't bring that up. You know, it's sort of like the whole thing that I'm going to talk about later in this month about, you know, don't mention how these alien races can all understand each other, because then we'll just start thinking about all the other ones. The same sort of thing here. It's like, I don't know if you should be making us think about his parents here. Next thing, we're going to learn that there were spies in World War Two. Yes. Killed uh, by the Red Skull. Yeah. <laughs> so when Gwen is showing interest in trying to get Peter Parker's attention, she's thinking to himself, Peter Parker is the only boy I've met who hasn't given me a tumble, which 
is a phrasing that I am not familiar with, and it sounds a lot dirtier probably than it should have back in the day. Somebody online pointed out that, you know, if you listened to Culture Club back in the 80s, you would have heard, I tumble for you. Tumbling for someone is one thing. Giving someone a tumble is something else entirely. I also, one thing that just occurred to me when you were talking about the whole Gwen and Peter relationship, in the last couple of decades, you might have, if Peter was doing what he was doing on purpose, described his behavior as negging <laughs> Gwen. Yes, he's totally negging her. <laughs> yeah. So negging, we should explain, is part of pickup artist culture of the early aughts where they're like, oh, when you meet a girl, you should get her name wrong or uh, say she looks tired or do various things that aren't directly insulting but are indirectly insulting her. And then if, once you've insulted her, she's going to have her interests perked and she is going to try harder to win you over once you have given her a minor insult of some kind. And I always, and obviously this is something where people who are not misogynists are like, oh, this is a horrible thing. What a, you know, this is sort of the example of why pickup culture is so horrible. And I always feel terrible because I did neg my wife when I met her. I am terrible <laughs> with names. Oh, and- God, I, you can't be worse with names than I am. <laughs> I was introduced to like, oh, here's Betsy Ramsey. And I said, oh, OK. And then later in the night, I said, oh, Becky, was that your name? And she was like, no, it was Betsy. And that's like classic negging. And uh, it worked. <laughs> she married me. So uh, I'm here to tell you negging works, America. Yes, yes. Um, I, I in college just decided to tell everybody I met that it would take me seven times asking their name before I would remember it. Uh, and that way, yes. you know, I, I could just keep asking and then I'd eventually learn their names. Uh, sometimes <laughs> it'd be like the fifth time and someone would be like, you weren't kidding. I'm like, no, what made you think I was kidding? That's that's for real. No, but you're right. He is totally ignorant. He is. This is because he is just think it's so focused on this other thing. He does. He is ignoring her. And clearly no one has ever ignored her before because she is gorgeous. And this is the ultimate catnip to her. And uh is it's such an interesting way to begin what will be such a meaningful relationship to them both with uh with this accidentally him accidentally intriguing her by just being too busy to pay attention to her yes yes all right so uh let's move on to daredevil uh and i will do my best on this one this one is you know (laughs) trying to clean up the mess of last issue so it's a bit of a mess itself uh i will do my darndest to try and keep this uh as concise as i can yeah just just vaguely sum up this book it is not worth getting into all the plot. So just to recap with everybody, last issue was written by Wally Wood with him getting both plot and script credit. But then Stan went out of his way to tell us over and over again how terrible the writing was. And then later he will claim in a later letters page that he actually rewrote the whole book and because it was so bad. But then Stan complained already in the last book, Wally wrote this one. He's not going to write the next one. This is the first half of mystery. I'm going to have to write the second half and explain what happened to mystery. And we get a quick recap in this book on the splash page. Once again, Stan going like, Wally Wood wrote part one of this two-parter last-ish just for a lark. Now it's up to sly old Stan to put all the pieces together and make it come out okay in the end. Can he do it? See for yourself. So this is Stan just utterly at war with Wollywood. This will turn out to be Wollywood's last issue on the book. He is just credited as inker in this issue, and then he has gone from Marvel for good. Well, not for good. He will come back at some point in, I guess, the 70s. Uh, he draws a Doctor Doom book. 
um, for a that while. That is right. I totally forgot he comes back to do the Doctor Doom book. I think that's actually in the late sixties. That is true. Yeah, and that seems like a much better fit for him than Daredevil. Uh, again, Submariner probably would have been the best fit, but yeah, Doctor Doom is uh, is not bad. Okay, so yeah, as you said, this has tons of plot, and we really don't need to get into it that much. Okay, so let's see. This might be a little too brief, but... um, No, I I promise you it can't be brief enough. Okay, so uh, essentially, Daredevil is able to break the case that the Reform Party and the organization are basically the same thing, that the organization is just uh, being run by the same guy who's running the Reform Party, and uh, all the crimes are being done to help get the Reform Party in office, at which point they will be able to rule corruptly, and yada, yada, yada. So that, that that's pretty much the plot. Uh, and there's a bunch of stuff with the Animen and, uh, you know, uh, Foggy's old high school girlfriend who has been acting as, what, a uh, honey trap? What, what would be the term you would say? <laughs> I'd say honey trap. Yeah. I'd say honey trap is yeah. a good way of describing her. Anyway, uh, that, that's pretty much the thing. So let me just go ahead and talk about some highlights along the way. When Daredevil figures out that Foggy's old girlfriend is working with the bad guys, he comes in to, quote, rescue her, and he says, Miss Harris, are you all right? She says, oh, Daredevil, thank heavens you're here. I'm so glad to see you. And he thinks to himself, I bet you are, you little fraud. <laughs> it just seems like, ooh, okay, well, that's that's getting a little spicy. Uh, yeah. So later when the organizer is, I even want to say the planner, but I'm like, no, that's the master planner. This is the organizer, and they're different characters. They just happen to be going on at the same time. But he is taking over the airwaves, and the father of the uh, family who's there with the TV on is saying, what happened to the regular show? What can this be? It's too early for Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> of, of course, it was about 43 years too early for Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> Something like that. So that just, that just yes, jumped out at me. They were predicting the far future there. Uh, they were there to sort of making a joke about, you know, spy all the spy TV shows at the time. But in Marvel, there's S.H.I.E.L.D. So they're imagining that there was a show on TV called Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. But many years later, there would be a show called Agent of shield yes um anyway that that's that's pretty much all i have to say about this issue uh which is which is a shame for you know wally wood's association with this to fizzle out in this way but you can't try to really polish that one i say on my notes first of all it says here comes Daredevil now on sale monthly and i wrote monthly but why why would you make this book monthly? It's uh, it's not like this was their most popular book. I think they just decided they don't want to do bi-monthly books anymore, and they didn't want to cancel it, so they had to make it monthly. I can understand making X-Men monthly. I can't understand making this book monthly. So the penciling is credited to uh, Bubbly Bobby Powell and uh, wonderful Wally Wood inker. I, I like the combination. I like the Bob Powell-Wally yeah. Wood combination on the art. I think it looks nice. It looks more like Wally Wood than Bob Powell. Uh, although you um, you can see some Bob Powell in here from time to time. Or is yeah. that I just saw last panel of page nine where the organizer is about to hit the detonate button. I'm just thinking of all the Bob Powell issues of uh, Giant Man that he drew. And I'm like, yeah, that totally looks like a panel out of of his run on that book. So yeah, there's some of it that comes through that does look like him. But uh, I think the biggest problem with this issue is 
as as was the case last issue, and now with Stans mostly taking over the writing from Wally, he can't make it work any better. The three suspects for who the organizer are, these three people who work for the Reform Party, are all just the same dude. Like, it's Bernard Harris, candidate for borough president, Abner Jonas, candidate for mayor, Milton Monroe, candidate for assemblyman, and these are our three suspects. But they're all just middle-aged businessmen, Reform Party people. And who cares? Like, you know, if you're going to have a mystery, like one of the suspects has to be, you know, the poor suitor and one of the suspects has to be the rich suitor. And then depending on who did it, that says something different about society. But uh, in this case, it's it's the exact same thing about society, no matter who did it. So who cares? Well, right. And in this case, it's like, which member of the reform party is the one who leads the, uh, the bad guys? And it's like, Oh no! It's we're all clear on the fact that this reform party is in bed with the uh, with the gang, but all we care about is which guy. And it's like I don't know these people. I don't care. You you you've given away the game. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which, I, I don't it's, I don't care. It's like oh, it was this guy. I'm like which which guy? I don't know. I don't care. I don't remember. But yeah, it was. But it was the reform party and the organizer, right? Yes. Okay. Good. We already knew that from the beginning. So what do we care now? So, yes, you did sum up this issue very quickly. Um, There's uh, all sorts of stuff you could have covered. The Daredevil has to go undercover as Frogman for a long time, which uh, does result in some fun stuff. In the past, whenever Daredevil has to take his head off, he is always wearing sunglasses under his cowl, which is always very silly. Here, you get a brief glimpse of Daredevil with his glasses off. Yes. I do point out on page nine, Daredevil knocks Frogman out and then decides to take his clothes off of him and take, take his own Daredevil clothes off, take Frogman's clothes off of his prone body, then put on Frogman's outfit. And I'm like, yeah, this is, you never want to linger on those scenes. <laughs> you never want <laughs> to give too much thought to what's going on in those scenes. You just get a brief glimpse of him in his tidy whities here. Um, <laughs> so so I, one of my problems with this issue is that you never even get a scene in which the organizer is wearing this mask and the way they reveal who the organizer is, it's someone who has already been taken prisoner. The person is like, oh, we think it's this person, but it can't be. He's been taken prisoner. Well, it turns out, oh, he had himself taken prisoner. He is the bad guy. But as a result, you never get to see the mask taken off. If yeah. you've got a character wearing a hood, you're going to want to see the hood ripped off at some point. And we never get that in this issue because he is revealed to be the organizer at a time when he is not wearing the hood. So I thought that was uh, that was disappointing. And then the issue ends with three pages of soap opera stuff. Endless amounts of soap opera stuff. The issue wraps up early, and then you have all the stuff. And then Matt Murdock quits the law firm. He decides that uh, he's he's doing them a favor somehow by quitting the law firm, which is dubious logic, because uh, they don't want him to go. But uh, he quits the law firm and is leaving. And so the soap opera stuff reaches its maximum here. He says, Matt, I just want you to know, I'm sorry, I had to end like this. He says, forget it, Foggy. This isn't the end. It's a new beginning for all of us. And then it says, next issue, new artist, new storyline, new surprises, but the same old action, thrills, and suspense. Don't miss it. So next issue, and for the next eight issues, we will have John Romita come on the book. Mm-hmm. And then Gene Cohn is going to take off. So he continues to have high-quality art on this book. We yeah. just had a high-quality artist for the last eight issues or so, and then we're going to get another high-quality artist and then another. So, But the book continues to be pretty terrible. Yeah. I, I was going to say, ah, I wouldn't say terrible, but then thinking about this issue in particular, I'm like, yeah, yeah, maybe terrible. <laughs> 
Pretty terrible. <laughs> okay. All right. So I think we are done with that. Okay. Let's move on. So you may notice that we are doing this out of order. Normally, we would go on to Fantastic Four, but we want to save Fantastic Four for our next episode of the podcast. So we are going out of alphabetical order, and we're going to jump ahead and go to Journey into Mystery. Journey into Mystery with Mighty Thor, number 123, while a universe trembles, and we have... Thor pushing down some walls while we have four members of the cast floating around him. We pick up a real left off last issue. Thor has been convinced by Harris Hobbs. He's like, Harris Hobbs is like, I want to see Asgard, but you can wipe my mind afterwards and I won't take any pictures and I'll never know I even did it, but I want to go to Asgard uh, or else I'm going to reveal that you're Don Blake. And Thor's like, well, Okay, if you're never going to tell anybody and you're not even going to remember it, okay, I'll take you there. And he had said last issue he wouldn't take eight pictures, but now he's got his camera here. Now, you pointed out on Instagram that Thor is swinging his hammer around in a way that he would have to be swinging his arm right through Harris Hobbs as he swings it around. Well, on, on the splash page, it looks like it's going over his head, but there are at least two other panels later in the issue where it is clearly going right through his torso. <laughs> you know, if you look at it too long, you're like, wait a minute. Uh, yes. So, uh, but, uh, and, and, you know, once again, they, they go overboard with the credits on here. Fantasy to dazzle thy senses, written by Stan Lee. Drama to quicken thy pulse, illustrated by Jack Kirby. Beauty to nourish thine eyes, embellished by Vince Coletta. And balloons to compound thy confusion, lettered by Artie Simon. Yes. So then Thor takes Harris Hobbs to Asgard only to find that he is not the first mortal to go there because Absorbing Man is already there kicking ass. And there's all these poor hobbled troops who are like, ugh, you know, the Absorbing Man has been here beating us up. And sure enough, they find the Absorbing Man fighting Odin and absorbing Odin's power and shooting it back at him. And there's big stuff going on. Meanwhile, back on Earth. So this has become a huge problem in that they never identified what country Thor was in when he dropped the Northern Stone. And this <laughs> continues to be a big problem because it's still very unclear what country this is because now we're dealing with the dropped Northern Stone. And they say it is an Asian country, but it's an Asian country with a witch doctor. There is a witch doctor who is hiding from communist troops so well, uh, okay. this is all very confusing. It, it very much makes no sense. As a matter of fact, there's uh, one of the panels that I marked earlier. The natives, I, I don't know what you'd say, the, the indigenous people, let's just say that. The indigenous people of this area have this sort of fortress that looks like it's kind of on the edge of a jungle. But then it says this is on a lonely plateau on the outskirts of Mongolia. And Okay. <laughs> Does Mongolia have witch doctors? I mean, I'm sure that uh, at points in the in their history, they've had shamans of one sort or another, which I guess are pretty much referred to as witch doctors through most of you know white American history talking about them. But it's not the one that looks like we've got in here. As a matter of fact, he looks he looks. I mean, you know, what does he look like? Southeast Asian and or African kind of mixed together in terms of their like the shields of the indigenous people or are, are carrying and the shape of the mask. It's just it's very confusing. But then to make it even more confusing, the he doesn't run across the Norn Stone where Thor dropped it. It says the enchanted stone, which can never remain long in any one place, but levitates itself at random as it is just now done, traveling thousands of Earth miles in one single mystic journey. So they make it clear this the stone may have traveled thousands of miles since Thor dropped it. Anyway, we've lingered on this on this fact too long. So then uh, the witch doctor finds the Norn Stone 
instantly gains the ability to catch the communist bullets, throw them back at them, and get into a huge fight with them. Meanwhile, back on Asgard, Absorbing Man is still seemingly kicking Odin's ass, and to the extent where that then Loki comes in and there and Thor's like, oh great, here's Loki to tell a bunch of lies about how this isn't his fault. And Loki's like, nope, I'm not going to tell any lies. I'm going to go ahead and just come out to Odin that I am evil. So Odin says, Loki, are you then so sure of yourself that you dare flaunt your treason before my very eyes? And Loki says, your time has come, stepfather. You have ruled long enough. It is time that you took your rest. Only the strongest may possess the supreme scepter. Let it now be mine. So then he demands Odin's scepter or else he'll have... Absorbing man continue to cause big trouble. And Odin's like, okay, I give up. I'm going to give you my scepter. I'm going to give you all my powers. And he hands over the scepter. But then Absorbing Man's like, why should you get the scepter? I want it. And they start fighting over the scepter. And Thor is like, I I mean, no disrespect, sire, but there was no reason for abject surrender. I can still regain Yon's scepter if thou but say the word. And I love Odin's look as he is sort of flicking his fingers at Thor. <laughs> you can sort of see... In Kirby's art, you can sort of see the flicking of the fingers as Odin says, another moment's patient, valiant one. The play has not yet ended. And so Loki and Absorbing Man continue to fight over it. And then Thor reveals, by the way, the scepter has no power at all. I have the power. I am Odin. I just hold the scepter as a prop. Now that you guys have been fighting over a while, I will eject you both out into space. And that is it. He sends them both out into space. That whole storyline is dealt with on page 12, never to be mentioned again, at least for a while. So then Thor's like, oh, that was badass. Uh, Meanwhile, Harris Hobbs in the whole battle has had his camera crushed. Of course, he had promised to not take any pictures and had made it clear his memory is going to be wiped. So what would he even think of these pictures if he had them after having his memory wiped? The last panel on page 14 is one of those ones where that hammer is clearly just demolishing Harris Hobbs like there. <laughs> yes, yes, very much so. How is it swinging through him? So then he takes Harris Hobbs back to Earth and Harris Hobbs is like back to Earth without pictures, without evidence, even without memory. And Thor says, it is best that I granted you the gift of forgetfulness. Some things are better unremembered. And he says, there's probably nothing to forget. How do I know you didn't trick me? How do I know that I even went to Asgard? And Thor says, some nights in your sleep, when you think your dreams are merely dreams, there will be some small part of you that knows. And so that is it. Meanwhile, we do cut to the witch doctor who is now carrying around the Nornstone and is trying to raise an army to now take over the world. Uh, He is now called the demon. A demon you have called me, and so a demon I shall be. I think this is a fine issue. It's a little awkwardly balanced between the witch doctor storyline, which is, you know, for upcoming issues and wrapping up the Absorbing Man. Loki storyline, I felt like that deserved its own full issue wrap up. It didn't need to overlap with this new upcoming story. But I love Odin's flicking fingers. I love the way (laughs) Odin deals with Loki and the Absorbing Man, and uh, I love the way this storyline wraps up. And the next storyline seems perfectly fine as well. Uh, Yeah, one thing that I find interesting is the sort of moral category that they put the demon into, in that they are an indigenous people that are being taken over by the communist hordes. I don't know, in that situation, hordes actually sounds like it might be the wrong word to use, since that was actually the name for uh, basically an army in Mongolian, if I'm not mistaken. They very much show that he starts out as a champion or a shaman or whatever of an indigenous people who are trying to fight off an invasion by communist forces. And so it seems like, oh, 
here is going to be a champion that will be able to save his people from this imperialism and then but then he's also turns into a villain so it's like he is simultaneously once again this is one of the things that can be really interesting in martin early marvel about you know having this somewhat moral ambiguity about uh some of these things that you know he's like oh good i can get rid of these people who are trying to invade our land and now it's time for us to go and raise more hell they make it a little more complicated than they needed to which i like yeah I think it's good. Nice bit of complexity. It's certainly a common enough story trope to have someone who it's like, you know, I am a member of an oppressed class, but as soon as I got a little power, watch out. I yeah. become worse than any of the oppressors. And we should just, of course, mention how terrible Aquatus things are. Uh, yeah. On the very first page, this should be such a dynamic drawing of Thor swinging his hammer around over his head. And Claudia inks it with thousands of little lines which take away all the dynamism entirely it is terrible to watch and again i you know i will once again say that i don't think that the number of lines is the problem it's how they are executed and yes in that, that particular one it does just make the thing look much more static and flat than it should uh, i will also point out that on page two panel six harris hobbs eyes are a train wreck oh my god absolutely <laughs> terrible let us say no more about uh, about the inking on this issue. And uh, instead, tell me some tales, please, Matt, of Asgard. So, unfortunately, still linked by Clara, continuing our epic saga of the quest to find out why there's a crack in the Odin sword, continues to move very slowly to the extent where, for the last several months, they have been sailing their ship into the dragon's teeth, um, and then they had to deal with mutiny, and then... They had to deal with these crashing um, rocks. And two months ago, Balder climbed up to blow a horn that was going to help in some way. Well, then the next issue was all about the mutiny, and he still didn't get a chance to blow the horn. Well, this year, it's like, is he finally going to blow the horn? Well, first we begin with two of our five pages are back in Asgard as Odin is peering off into the distance, trying to see what's going on in the ship and only being able to see sort of shadows in the clouds and wondering what's going on. And I do have to say that I do kind of like the way that the shadows and the clouds end up being rendered. I mean, I think it could have been much better with some other ink but I I kind of I, I see what Coletta was doing and I think he accomplished what he was trying to do there uh, it doesn't look enough like clouds like I would like but yeah it's not terrible it's not a terribly inked panel and the first page of Odin standing on top of a hilltop uh, mountaintop looking out on the horizon is gorgeous and really not badly inked at all yeah and I love Odin's armor. This is sort of the most uh, resplendent armor we've ever seen him wear. He looks like he's really ready for battle, even though he's not part of the battle. Uh, but you pointed out how bizarre <laughs> his sword sheath is. That, yes. uh, the, the sword is much uh, wider than its sheath. And how exactly would that work? I showed this to Betsy and she was like, it must be spring loaded. You just hit a little <laughs> button and the thing springs open. Well, that, that that's what somebody on one of the Facebook groups was was talking about was like, you know, oh, yeah, well, there's this particular model of holster that like the L.A. cops used in some years or something like that, where it'd be like a little clamshell that popped open. It's like it's probably like that. I'm like, you get a no prize, buddy. Let's go ahead and go with that. I find, uh, of course, Odin always has to have a spectacular helmet. I find his helmet is very strange in that it's got a big white thing on the top of it 
that is yeah. that is I can't tell what that is supposed to be, but uh, I love the horns. I, I don't really understand the white thing, but it's still absolutely gorgeous, an absolutely gorgeous panel. Then we finally cut back to the mutiny is seemingly quelled. We have the ship going through the rocks, and Balder finally gets a chance to blow his horn, which is a horn that blows up the rocks, saving the ship, although that just happens in the final panel. Things are moving extremely slowly, <laughs> but I can't complain. It's gorgeous art. I don't read Tales of Asgard to get a lot of pot. I read Tales of Asgard to get another chapter in a very slowly developing story, and that's exactly what I get. And I'm loving it. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is ludicrously slow, but yeah, it's 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 tons of fun, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna turn it down. Yep, and we got to see a great armor on Odin. We got to see a absolutely gorgeous splash page of Odin, which makes the whole issue worth it. Okay, all right. So let's go ahead and jump on to Tales to Astonish. Okay, so let me see if I can sum this one up uh, not quite as succinctly as I did Daredevil, but still succinctly. Yes, when the quest fails, sorry, no, not when the quest fails, in a very Stan Lee fashion, when fails the quest. So devastating yes. drama by Stan Lee, shattering spectacle by Adam Austin, explosive embellishment by Vince Coletta, cataclysmic calligraphy by Sam Rosen. Sam Rosen actually gets possibly the best one of the of the bunch this time. So, yeah. oh, and we right. should say that Adam Austin is Gene Cullen. Yes, uh, Adam Austin is still Gene Cullen. They have not found a new artist to be going by the name Adam Austin, like uh, <laughs> like um, uh, the you know Tom Swift writer and and uh, and whatever else. They just keep on finding new writers to be the fake writer. Okay, so when fails the quest, the reason for this title. Mariner has been going through this quest to try and find Neptune's trident in order to get the uh, get his throne back, but he has finally decided that he needs to save Lady Dorma from the Faceless Ones, and so he has to at least have what they might call these days a side quest. Right? <laughs> so yes. uh, he heads off to fight the Faceless Ones. Dorma is still in her plastic cage, but it is getting close to wearing out. The Faceless ones aren't particularly strong but they are endless they can just wear you down i like the faceless ones i think that cola and Claudia do a good job on the faceless ones they they do seem like an endless horde that would wear you down they're very sort of cool and creepy and i like them a lot yes so then uh we see a little bit of krang uh he has successfully ensconced himself into his innermost protective area of the palace where he still has all of his control stuff and he lets his people know that um, their revolution has failed and that they will all be punished <laughs> so which seems like a really good way to be a despotic leader is just to say all right everybody you have nothing to lose now because <laughs> you are all going to have horrible lives but you know no nobody ever accused Krang of being all that intelligent. The old man, and how, how did the old man come up a few issues ago? Somehow, um, an old man saw... Yeah, an old man saw Namor on going upon his quest at one point, and he then let everybody else know that Namor is not dead. He's still out there making his quest, so he can go and find Namor and bring him back to deal with this. Krang has some sort of robo-tank that he's sending out to uh, deal with his citizenry, and it zaps them all. Of course, it didn't kill them because this is a CCA, a uh, comic code-approved uh, comic. So instead, it just, like, stuns 
summons them into unconsciousness. The old man, meanwhile, is actually riding a seahorse to find Namor, and he looks quite silly, yeah. actually. <laughs> it really looks silly. I gotta say that when Ramona Ferdan or whatever would draw Aquaman riding a seahorse, Aquaman would generally ride a seahorse, it looked pretty cool, and Gene Cohen did not get the memo. Gene Cohen cannot figure out how to make this look cool or comprehensible to show an old man riding a seahorse. It looks utterly ridiculous. Yes. So Namor is losing the valiant fight as he just gets covered up by um, all of the faceless ones. The old man is, you know, trying to go to where he is somehow sensing that Namor is, finds that he is in the land of the faceless ones. And he's like, oh, no, that's not good. Uh, and then he falls into the pit that will take him down to the faceless ones. So he thinks his uh, his whole deal is over. Dorma's plastic cage finally disintegrates. It apparently, as it, as it disappears, it explodes and it sort of knocks the faceless ones out of his way and gives him a moment to regroup. And that's kind of where we leave this. So uh, we're not quite sure what's happened to the old geezer who is coming and trying to get him. Meanwhile, it still looks like Samariner's facing terrible odds, but he is now happy has Lady Dorma in his arms and um, is ready to face whatever may come. And it says, next issue, the end of the quest. So I don't remember. What was this quest? I don't remember what this quest was, I believe. It it was to find Neptune's trident because whoever can find Neptune's trident is the true ruler of Atlantis. Um, But I mean, I feel like... I don't I you remember it better than I do, but I feel like the whole point was I need to get Neptune's Trident because that's the only way I can lead anyone in revolt against Krang. Yes. They will believe in me, they will follow me if I have Neptune's Trident, and then I can I can somehow break Krang's hold on them if I had the Trident. Well, obviously Krang has no hold on them because they did not wait for Namor to return home. They have led a huge revolt against him with Namor not even being there, much less having Namor leading them with a Trident. So, like, talk about the fail of the quest. Like, no, the quest has succeeded beyond its wildest dreams. <laughs> like, the potting on this whole storyline has been just awful and has completely fallen apart. No one can remember why you ever wanted this trident, dude. This is, and it turns out you absolutely did not need it, and instead you have gotten sucked into the side quest, and the whole thing is pretty silly. I think the robot tank looks very silly. I think certainly the old man riding the seahorse looks very silly when, you know, it can look very cool, we know from reading Aquaman comics. Cohen and Clyde are working together better. I think the art is not terrible. I really like the faceless ones. Also, not much happens in this issue in terms of Namor is protecting Dorma from the faceless ones on page one, and he is still protecting her on page 12 at the end of the issue. I'm glad that this storyline is going to wrap up next issue, but it has been a mess. Also, one thing I did notice is at one point the uh, revolting peasants, and of course we know peasants, the peasants are revolting, um, yes. is uh, one of them says, an armored mobile hyphen defenso hyphen wall. <laughs> it's yes. like... Uh, you're trying too hard here, uh, Stan. That's <laughs> just uh, let it go, let it go. That's enough with Submariner. Let's move on to the back half of the book and Hulk. Yes. So you invited me to tell you about the Incredible Hulk, and now I shall do so. So yes. the wisdom of the Watcher. Last issue, we had the truly bizarre plot turn where this very terrestrial storyline of uh, the leader trying to take over the world in various ways, suddenly he just, like, 
jumped several steps ahead and it was like, okay, now we're going to go for like the galaxy or the universe or something like that. It's like, man, you were already sort of talking about, oh, next I'll do Atlantis. And I'm like, man, slow down. And then it's like, and now the universe. It's like, man, okay, you just need to consolidate your wins. You, you that 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 might that might help you. We're gonna take on the Watcher. We're gonna go to the Watcher's home planet and try to steal from him. And but yeah, not even going to the Watcher's base on the moon, which would be quite a jaunt to get from right. the Earth to the moon. Going all the way across the universe to the Watcher's home planet, very far away. And it's like, okay, this is the yeah, as you said, an Earthbound book took a very big leap away from the Earth. Yes, and the Hulk was transported there at the speed of thought. All right, so this story was dreamed up by Stan Lee, designed by Jack Kirby, drawn by Bob Powell, delineated by Mickey DeMeo, Mike Esposito, and doodled by S. Rosen. So this is another one of those situations where we have layouts by one artist, finished pencils by another artist, and inks by a third artist, which often does not work very well, and in this case... uh, doesn't work great, but I've seen it go worse. I thought it could certainly have gone worse. I like the art okay in this issue. I like it better than last issue. I forget what the combo was last issue, but the Hulk kept having a very smushed looking face last issue. We've solved the smushy face problem in this issue. I always liked Mayo's inks. Bob Powell is certainly the weak leg of this triangle with uh, Jack Kirby, Bob Powell, and Keith Mayo. But I think this issue is uh, shockingly good. I like the amphibian, the For some reason, the red creature he's fighting is not named in this issue, but I believe he will later be called the Amphibian. He mentions he is Amphibian here. I think that will eventually be his name. I like his look. I like the way Tomeo inks him. I like the art in this issue. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. Anyway, right as the Hulk was about to grab the scientific object that the leader had sent him for, he gets jumped by this red amphibious creature and who is supposed to be the strongest one on his entire planet. He is essentially the fighting champion of his entire planet. They end up getting into a fight. The Watcher is like, dude, these people are smashing too much stuff in my house. I'm going to go ahead and send them over to some abandoned area where they can have this fight uh, on their own, which, once again, how much does the Watcher actually, you know, be like, oh, I can't do anything. Oh, but get out of my house for a little bit. Oh, but now I can't stop you from grabbing stuff. Oh, but <laughs> make up your minds, people. So they're fighting against each other. The amphibious lizard-type creature takes the fight under water thinking that will give him the advantage not realizing the hulk has so much breath that he can hold in his lungs that he can it's going to take a while for that to actually give him any advantage i've never bought this by the way the whole idea that if you're super strong you can hold your breath for an awful long time never bought that never really made any sense to me also they they go back and forth on that because oftentimes gas is brought up as one of the hulk's weaknesses that yeah. oh yeah but you can gas him and then he'll be out <laughs> talking about the art there's one panel at least that really does not work well uh last panel on page five where the hulk is squeezed between uh squeezed in a rock crevasse and i don't know man that face on page five looks like some sort of it looks like some sort of indie comic it doesn't look like yeah. a marvel superhero comic you know it looks like something that would look just fine in you know 
uh, a Daniel, you know, like maybe Daniel Close or or Klaus, or however you pronounce it, or you know, one of the uh, '60s underground comics guys or something like that. It just looks really weird. Anyway, yeah. so the so the amphibian is sure that now that he has wedged uh, the Hulk into here, that now he is victorious. But then the Hulk is able to free himself and come up and throws the lizard person out into space. At which point, though, the Watcher transports the guy back to his planet, I'm guessing. Because uh, yeah. he's like, eh, it's clear who won, so I'm just going to go ahead and send him back where he was. Meanwhile, though, I can't interfere with you taking anything from my house. <laughs> just like, what? what are these rules, man? So he goes ahead and finds this sphere that has, like, all the, like, basically all the knowledge that the watcher has more or less all stored in this thing. And the leader is like, ah, oh, yes, mine, mine, mine. This will be able to give me all the knowledge I need. Oh, give it all to me. And it overloads his still all too human brain, even though it's a gamma irradiated super brain. Uh, it seems to overload him and fill up his head. And then he falls to the ground in a lifeless coma state. Well, not just that, the hog Figures out he's dead, and he looks pretty dead. And I gotta say, I love, I've been defending the art in this issue, I love the sequence of panels on page 10, where the leader puts the globe on his head, and then he suddenly, some veins pop out in his huge forehead, and he starts freaking out, and his eyes get really big, and then he goes, and then uh, there's only one way of describing the the middle panel of the page, and that's, and then... (laughs) Then suddenly his eyes go real dead and uh, roll back up into his head and he rolls over dead. I think it is a very nice sequence of panels of the leader getting too much of a good thing out of this helmet containing all the knowledge in the universe. Yes, I, I cannot argue with that. So a couple of things that I'll just point out that were along the way that I skipped by. Um, at one point when the Hulk is fighting the amphibian, he ends up thinking to himself in a thought balloon, the Watcher must have done something to let us understand each other's language. Big deal. I believe in action, not talk. A, that is some super clumsy exposition. B, again, we've talked about this, Stan, you should not explain why two different people from two different planets can talk to each other, because then that's just going to make us wonder what the explanation is for every other instance. Don't yes. don't explain it once, if unless you're going to explain it every time. Uh, and I really don't think you want to explain it every time. Also, during the fight, right after they get transported to the New World, the amphibian says... It is whispered in the galaxy that the creatures of Earth feel they are superior to all. You are the living proof of that belief, foolhardy one. And I I don't know, I find that a really interesting line. The idea is that there are whispers in the galaxy that essentially the human race feels that they are superior to everyone else. The idea that that is our reputation in the universe. I don't know. That that, that just seems like a, that there's a lot that you could delve into there in certain ways, uh, especially since, you know, Earth creatures haven't really made that. You know, it's not like we're an empire like the Kree or the Skrull or the Shi'ar. Of course, the Kree and the Shi'ar haven't shown up yet. But, you know, we're not an empire or anything. So how would we have this reputation? And what does it say about us that we have this reputation? Anyway, that's uh, th- those are my those are my deeper thoughts about some of the things in the issue. But other than that, I am done. 
Yeah, I like this issue. It's, I mean, this is essentially this whole book, this whole many years worth of book have all basically poured into this one issue. We've got the leader has been the Hulk's main nemesis for years at this point, and he is seemingly dead. His storyline has come to its conclusion. And so uh, the Hulk is going to have to sort of start over from scratch next issue. But I think this is a satisfying conclusion to uh, many years worth of stories. I like it. Yes. Uh, I, has it really been multiple years? I think that the leader's been around for about a year, hasn't he? Anyway, it, it doesn't matter. And then, interestingly, on the letters page, we have a letter from Bud Plant, who was a great distributor huh. of comics. And the letter, the first letter on the letters page says, Dear Stan, hey, what's this Marvel Pop Art Productions? I first saw this on Tales to Astonish. Get rid of it. Marvel Comics Group sounds better and more sophisticated. Let's have your famous trademark back. So be it, says Bud Plant of 4160 Holly Drive, San Jose, California. Bud Plant, very famous name in comics history, big distributor of comics. And they're sort of letting him take the blame here for they're going to take Pop Art. So Pop Art disappears midway through this month. So half of our books this month have Pop Art and half of them don't. They're letting Bud Plant take the blame for taking it off because uh, he thinks it sounded more sophisticated without it. So that is the end of Pop Art Productions, thanks to Bud Plant. Okay, so and then they have another letter from the Hulk cult at the Sigma Nu fraternity at the University of Syracuse. So uh, <laughs> they're continuing, continuing to reach out to college students who have now started. It's not at all ominous that a fraternity would have a subcult uh, dedicated to the Hulk. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'd want to go to any parties thrown by that particular fraternity if they've got a subcult dedicated to the Hulk within their fraternity, but uh, okay. Sure, you do you. Uh, just I'll be over here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, so let's go ahead and I'm going to be editing these episodes. We may want to end things here or we may want to rearrange things to do another book here, but let's assume that we're going to wrap up things here. So, Steve... How do you think this went to do the books in a different order? And what do you think of what we are now calling the first half of this month? Uh, I think that breaking it up in a different way is, as I said, trying to keep it a little fresh. It did feel like we were kind of getting into a bit of a uh, of a rut in some way in terms of the way we were going through this. So I think this is a good experiment. And overall, I mean, the Spider-Man was fantastic. Daredevil was uh, disappointing, a train wreck, but it's at least going to leave us with a new beginning next issue. Journey into Mystery was pretty grand, and Tales to Astonish has been, uh, it's a little uneven. I'm, I'm uh, you know, still not a big fan, not the biggest fan, at least, of the Namor storyline. Uh, but the Hulk, as you said, uh, this has come to a relatively satisfying conclusion here. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for sticking with us on our week off and then bearing with us as we try a new format. We will cram in five issues next episode, which we are about to record. Uh, we will see you next time, America. Uh, and the rest of the world. So, Indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, take care. Stay safe out there. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.